Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, today I have as a guest, Christine Sifen. She was a professor at Antioch University in California uh, with clinical psychology. Uh, she's now part of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR. Um, I saw a video of her by that foundation on YouTube, and I thought her story was very interesting. And so I'm going to have her on here today to talk with us. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. And oh. any way I can, you know, get the, the word out, I think, is fantastic on any platform. So I'm really honored that you invited me today. Oh, well, good. Thank you. I'm honored to be speaking with you. Um, is it okay if we start, just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and your upbringing? Yeah, so my parents immigrated to the United States from Egypt okay. before I was born, about a year before. And I have an older sister who was born in Egypt after my parents got married. Huh. And so interestingly, she has a very solid grasp of the language Arabic and wow her first language technically okay. and mine it was my second language you could say but you know learning the you know that the language arabic was not so important to my parents as it was uh, that i have opportunities in the united states and mm. try to assimilate mm. as much as possible so that was most important which sort of led to why i was named christine and my sister was named carolyn and we dropped the you know our original egyptian last name into somebody's middle name so that it appeared as though we were <laughs> americans that were born here despite you know the pigmentation and our skin <laughs> yeah. so it just sort of speaks to the fact that my parents really embraced the united states and wanted the opportunities for us to you know get an education and jobs that pay well and really, you know, just essentially they loved this country. I, it was always kind of the, the, the golden, you know, trophy, so to speak. It took them about seven years to immigrate in a legal fashion and then to go through the process of becoming citizens. So they eventually did. And we just really, you know, respected this country a lot. It was very different than Egypt, and that was an adjustment for them too. So it wasn't easy, and they didn't know the language, and they both had pretty prominent positions in Egypt. However, when they moved here, though, that didn't mean anything. They had to go back to school. They had to kind of struggle to to make ends meet often, mm -hmm. and that's what was important to them uh, going to school and you know learning English would just help their kids and that's the primary reason why they did it um, so they really came from a place of you know love this country and some conflict internally about what they gave up to come uh -huh. if um, I'm just thinking so they came from pretty well-off standings in Egypt what was the kind of cause of them wanting to immigrate to America yeah, it's a good question. I think at that point it was, you know, 1978 when they first got here. Mm. Um, I think a few years before that, uh, the country in their eyes was starting to sort of collapse into disarray and chaos. Mm. My parents um, are Coptic Egyptian, which is a, 
you know, a, a sect of Christianity. Oh. And Egypt's about 95 to 97% Muslim. Okay. So it was just a handful of them left. And although Egypt was non-secular in theory, it was radically changing um, into mm. a, a, you know, a country where it would identify as Muslim. Uh -huh. um, it hasn't, not to my knowledge, even this many years later, but it's sort of an unspoken um, mm. rule knowledge. And so they started to see a lot of violence toward Christians. Um, you know, some of the churches got burned down. The church that they mm. got married got burned down. Tour buses wow. were blowing up and the violence continued to escalate. And so my mom particularly was concerned mm. that we were it, you know, in harm's way uh, because uh -huh. of that. even though we had, you know, to draw on people that would, I don't know if you'd say they were necessarily, you know, uh, security, but mm. they had a lot of support um, in, in that regard. And uh, my, my uncle was uh, well-placed in the government. Um, I think he ended up becoming an ambassador. So he had a pretty, high profile career so there was some protection uh -huh. and uh, we couldn't rely on that and ultimately uh, my parents i would say my mom really wanted us to have a better life my dad had a harder time leaving it wasn't mm -hmm. as easy but he would never have changed that decision for the world at this point yeah, um, yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah um, especially having they were about to have your well they had your older sister and about to have you and thinking about what your future might look like in egypt as if they wanted to raise you christian and yes yeah yes okay. and they came they didn't have anything i mean it didn't translate what they had accumulated in egypt to here mm. so we grew up in neighborhoods that were very uh, poverty stricken and mm. they were about every ethnicity in fact the neighborhood we grew up in the majority was white and they were very you know, poor. Um, there was a lot of crime. Our home got bro broken into many times. And mm -hmm. uh, so it was just sort of a different, and, and they didn't expect really to get any help. They used to always say, you know, if we're going to make it here, we have to pull ourselves up. There weren't a lot of government programs at the time that would have supported them anyway in making mm -hmm. this happen. So they didn't come here thinking they were just going to get a beautiful home and a picket fence. They knew they were going to struggle. They knew they were going to be poor but they felt it was worth it. So that work ethic, I think uh, my sister and I really inherited. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. Did they experience a lot of, um, did they experience like, I don't know. They, they you, you mentioned how they assimilated really well. They even kind of dropped the last name and um, did they experience like racism or prejudice from their point of view or what was that like for them moving here? Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but there's a lot of racism in the Middle East. So, oh. you know, just because we're all from that continent or that area, um, your identity and culture and, you know, race, if you will, ethnicity, I'll say, hmm. it's extremely important, really. It's a core value. So when they came across people that were from the Middle East, but of different countries, they didn't consider themselves to be the same. My grandmother actually is Syrian. So my mother's half Syrian and my father's Egyptian, but we don't talk about the Syrian part because 
Syria to them was chaotic and they would blame, um, and not my parents, it's sort of the overall other Middle Eastern countries for any kind of war selling out to the US, we'll mm. say. Um, just in in general, they had they kept that very quiet, the Syrian part, and really pretended. So when they got to the US, they still were under this kind of Egyptian, they felt that it was it was going to be accepted more than Syrian Syria. Uh, uh -huh. so it was really a difference. So yeah, they experienced actually racism. They experienced a lot of violence. And over there, you don't call the police to help you. The police are paid off and uh, they're corrupt and you don't know what you're going to get. And they're not going to get to you till whenever. It might be different now, but that's how it was then. Hmm. So we grew up not knowing we were half Syrian until yeah, I was in my early 30s, actually. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of the the big gosh what why did we know and you uh, know as you press along you know you learn but i had known this before that you you know that there's this distinct different they're more based even in religion um than they are even in race so yeah that that's a that's a lot they experience a lot of you know rioting i mean things that people assume only happen in the u.s is not uh, the case or that racism is only here no the color of my skin is a little bit darker than most of my family. Hmm. They have more of the Syrian side, which is actually quite, you know, fair, fair skinned, right? Uh -huh. Lighter. Uh -huh. So it looked at as though I was in some way based on the color, uh, a little bit more disadvantaged than say uh -huh. my sister who was lighter because they knew racism happened here too. And they knew that that might be problematic. So just initial and their own belief system that lighter colored people uh, were just more attractive. So that came from my mom's, I would say her extended family, not my mother. My mother looked at my skin color and said, you fit right in, Americans like tans. Tan <laughs> so you're good. And she just always sort of harped on that. And so she wanted me to feel like, you know, I was beautiful anyway. It didn't matter that my skin wasn't white. So it's sort of interesting that you find that in other countries. Uh, but, you know, they're very protective of that. And because Syria didn't have a good reputation and maybe doesn't now, they just leaned in on the Egyptian side. So um, I don't think the racism was extent as extensive here. It was more there and it was more within my own family about the melanin, the skin color, more so than it was out in the world, out in you know, society. There wasn't a lot and until 9-11. In 9-11, there were a lot of, um, hmm. you know, there's a lot of racism toward Middle Eastern people. My mother said, don't tell anyone that you're Middle Eastern. You can pass for a lot of things, say you're something else. That's what hmm. I'm going to do. And, you know, that was, I think, and that lasted a very short time. Um, anyway, I'm probably going on and on, but. Oh, no, you're good. Yeah it, it, yeah, it lasted, you know, short, a short period of time. It wasn't ongoing, but, you know, there was a feeling there of, you know, you meet another Middle Eastern person or somebody from Egypt. And the very first question they're going to ask you is, are you Muslim or Coptic? Huh. That's the very first question. If they're Muslim and you're Coptic, there's going to be a rift. That's just based on religion, not skin color whatsoever. Hmm. If you say you're Coptic and they do too, it's, oh, great. We can now have another person to bond with and, and to, to, you know, believe in what we do and pure blooded Coptics. There's only maybe a million of them left in the, in the uh, world. They're going to eventually phase out. So it's sort uh -huh. of interesting. 
if you say you're Muslim and the other person's Muslim, oh, thank God we can't stand the Coptic Christians. Really strong hatred, hmm. not based on color necessarily, uh, more so based on religious affiliation if you are living in the Middle East. That is uh -huh. what matters. Uh -huh. um, that and your country, really. Um, so it's both, I guess. But what they experienced here was significantly less painful, significantly less difficult, and significantly less of a problem. Hmm. This uh, can I ask if it, like, let's say you meet another uh, Egyptian and you're both Coptic, does the would the would it then be based on are you like half Syrian or are you full? Like, does that then matter if you're both Coptic? Yeah, it it they assume because it's the Coptic. Uh, uh -huh. There's a lot of Orthodox Christian Orthodox. There's Greek Orthodox. There's a lot of different versions. The uh -huh. Coptic is specific to uh, to Egypt. Okay. And it's specific to a dialect of Arabic that uh -huh. is not shared across. There's so many dialects. Some say there's over a hundred across the Middle East. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a lot. So mm -hmm. the Coptic already you're telling someone you're egyptian assumption is that you're egyptian without uh -huh. an thought i see okay and so yeah what was um what was growing up for you like uh here in america yeah it was challenging i mean we didn't uh -huh. have a lot of money uh so we, you know we you know, bought you know my i went to catholic school my whole life my uniform you know when i was a child was uh used we had like a uniform exchange because we lived in a poor area. So a lot of people didn't have the money, hmm. um, but it was, you know, it was relative. My sister was the one who I think raised me for the better part of my childhood. She was seven, by the time I was actually born, she's seven years old. And so a few years later, she was already babysitting me at like the age of 11 or so. Uh, Cause my parents, you know, they had these kinds of crazy schedules. We had a babysitter that lived across the street from the school and she used to kind of babysit maybe say nanny now or childcare, but back then it was babysitter uh -huh. and we would just stay at her house until my parents came home so we were very lucky because of the high crime we would see people taking license plates off their car and switching them to other cars in the middle of the night oh. it, that kind of thing i don't know if you see much of that today but it, that it was that kind of thing so We'd go to Lucy's if we were scared or if something happened, hmm. or sometimes we would go home, but we would be, you know, taking care of ourselves till 10, 11 p.m. I mean, this I was taking the city bus from one part of town to the other by myself at the age of eight. Wow. So there was a this environment or generation of, you know, just having a lot of help and support, hmm. it did not exist. Hmm back then, uh -huh. primarily because we didn't have any money. So there was no choice. You just had to do it. Hmm. So, you know, I didn't have all the newest things, toys, clothes. Um, I started working at 15 years old. It was sort of an assumption we would start working early hmm. because my parents didn't have a lot of free money to, to kind of give us for the things we wanted. Um, I felt a little out of place not because I was Egyptian and there was racism toward me. Actually, at that time, the schools were like 30% Latino and like another 30% um, Asian, and then maybe the rest is white or Indian. And the people that were considered the most attractive were like the Latinos and they uh -huh. were the blacks and they were people of color. They, I don't even like that phrase, whatever, but 
that's what it was. So it wasn't, if I, if I passed for Latino, I'd have been totally fine. But I was Egyptian. Nobody knew what it was when we were kids. Huh. So there wasn't teasing and bullying and, you know, making fun of me and, and all of that. So I did feel very alone, but I always wanted to look like one of the Latina girls. I liked the blonde hair, you know, huh. Huh. the white girls, but I really wanted to be Latina because they just seemed to have such a better experience people liked them more whether it was friends or whether it was you know uh, dating mm. and so it's very you know it's very different for me than a typical person who has you know darker skin and this is why i became extremely frustrated over time with the assumption you know that if you were latina latino or black you automatically were going to be treated less than i didn't mm. see it that way i wasn't treated less than because i was that i got treated less than so i was egyptian and nobody mm. really knew or cared you know to learn what that was so it was really different i grew up in the bay area it's a totally different experience we had a uh in catholic school um i guess it was lgb at that time um 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we were a Catholic school and we had a club for the gay and lesbian and bisexual population at our school. It's unheard of. We had nuns, you know, it's unheard oh. of. But the acceptance, even in Catholic school, was so great in that we didn't, no one cared. It was like, okay, fine. Like there was never any shame. They mm. went to the prom together, you know. Oh girlfriend and girlfriend, boyfriend and boyfriend, no one cared. Wow. It was just, they're just people. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's great. And there was yeah. no shaming around that. So I had such a different experience with those things, uh -huh. than what the current narrative is, which uh -huh. is what made me really distressed is that there wasn't room for a different narrative to be a part of it. It's very nuanced for me. Hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, yeah, I wanted to be white too, but Mm -hmm. I'd have taken Latina or white. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> Maybe Greek. But um, that, I don't think, left an impression that shaped the core of my career or my life going forward. Sometimes, you know, when I was in college at UCSB, I noticed um, that there were more white people than anyone else. And, uh -huh. you know, I stood out a little bit. And I knew that. And I stand out now. I live in a very like affluent white area. It's not because mm. I'm affluent, it's because this is who I end up, you know, marrying. But, and I notice it and now it's 93, 94% white here. So it's, it's not unnoticeable. I don't reject uh -huh. it, but it's not the, what I lead with. It's not the most important thing to me at all. Uh -huh. I don't even eat the food that much. Uh, as far I don't. Yeah, <laughs> like comments. I can't stand it, but everybody loves it. You're not a real Egyptian. I mean, so you just kind of get both sides of this. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is, is it's not just a blanket. Like this is the way it is. There's a lot more nuance that you've seen and that you, yeah, experienced. Okay. And what is it that got you interested in studying psychology? That's a good question. So right after college, I went to. I went to UCSB and then I transferred to USC. And why that's sort of significant is because USC had one of the top three journalism schools at the time. And I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I wanted to do investigative reporting. And the journalism school there, you had to do all different se separate interviews and essays. 
you couldn't just get into the school, then you had to get into the program. And so I got through it and wanting to be a broadcast journalist, it was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And I went on to uh, complete that program, I switched, you know, a little bit, but I stayed within the same realm. And so I got a job, actually, at Comedy Central when I was 21 years old. Oh, cool. And then I moved over to MTV networks when we were bought. So I've had the coolest experiences and gone to the coolest places and met every level from celebrity to production people. Uh, And then, and then, and that was fine. You know, I had a great time. I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now, but because I just thought this just happens to everyone, but (laughs) it just doesn't. So, you know, and then my mother got very ill um, when I was about 24 and or 20, yeah, about 24. And, uh, she had a brain tumor and just, uh, you know, had, had surgery that left her with a lot of brain damage. And she sort mm-hmm. of shrunk into maybe five or six year olds capability. So mm-hmm. she didn't understand how to like how money works or checks or that you don't, you can't call to get pizza delivered and then just get it. And that's it, you know, not pay for it. There, there's these things, you know, she was incontinent. I could go on and on, but mm. it was very rough. And I stayed at MTV for an extra year. And my mom lives in Northern, lived in Northern California. I was going back and forth and mm. spend my whole, my, all my weekends there. It was very rough. And my mother was a very put together woman. She didn't leave the house in jeans without makeup, shoes, always wearing heels this big. So for <laughs> her to kind of, you know, have yeah. something like that happen, I don't know that she understood it, of what happened to her, but that's a real uh, blow to her dignity and mm. pride. And, you know, to have her daughter, you know, changing her diapers. Uh-huh. So, yeah. You know, I had to come to Jesus and thought, hey, you know what, forget all this entertainment junk, it means nothing. I want to go help people. And mm. I went to become a therapist and little did I know being a therapist isn't really about helping people. It's a little bit different, but that's another story. So it was sort of in that particular, I guess, time. And, um, she, you know, she eventually died a few years later mm. before I got licensed, but, you know, I carried on and that was, that was it. And it was my mom's illness. I don't think I would have ever left had it not been that. My, my wow. mind that was very corporate focused and doing the coolest jobs and all of that. Yeah. It wouldn't have changed that initial. I want to help people. And that's why I'm going to get into this. Does that, do you still hold on to that mentality? I want to help people. Is that still what you're. Well, I, I early on developed a like for training and teaching. Okay. So I felt like I was more effective in training students who are mm. going to go out in the world and do this kind of work or clinical supervisors or be, being a clinical supervisor so that they you know, would learn. And I think I understood that therapy wasn't about, I'm going to go help people. It was about really kind of supporting people and ask, you know, being, you know, this, a supportive, safe place where people could dig into themselves mm-hmm. and find their own answers. As therapists, we get little recognition. Uh, there's not a whole lot where the client is telling you constantly how much you've changed their lives. That happens a handful of times. Um, so I 
try to remind them, you know, you have to do it for you. It's mm. someone to think, let's job in some ways. <laughs> they attribute their own growth process to themselves, not to uh -huh. the therapist who was there helping them dig deeper. Uh -huh. So that, that's fine. That's great. It's what we want. So it's more of us being a guide rail in a sense to guide, you know, directions so that clients could reach their own level of, you know, um, self-agency and, you know, uh, aha moments, you know, those, those things, epiphany yeah. that changed their lives. And that was hard. And it is still hard for new therapists because they expect a lot of glory mm. and a lot of, uh, thank you so much. You've changed my life. Mm. I've gotten the most thank you so much from my students than I have from clients ever. Mm. Um, it doesn't make the worst work less meaningful, but it doesn't mean you're going to go in there and just sort of help people fix it, uh -huh. take care of their problems. And then thank you, Christine. And then you move on to another person. It just, it's, it's not that it was very shocking to me. Mm -hmm. And I think something like maybe 70%, I want to say, don't quote me on this, who go through a graduate school actually become licensed. I think it's 30% who get licensed, 70% don't, they drop out because it's so intense and it's nothing like what they thought it was going to be at oh. all. Uh -huh. So it's fascinating. Yeah. 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 I have one of my supervisors told me basically, um, the goal, the goal as a therapist isn't, to, she says the goal as a therapist is to have your client or your patient be like, my, my therapist makes me feel so smart. Like yeah, it's not yeah, that my therapist yeah. is so smart. It's my yeah, therapist. Yeah. Makes me feel that's yeah. exactly what it is. You know, it's wow. I was, I just discovered something, you know, here, you know, and, and kind of, I feel, you know, mm. so smart, but it's, you know, I, I feel so much more awareness about myself and where this comes from. And now I feel so empowered mm. and you're sitting there going, We've been talking about this for two years <laughs> and I have been <laughs> guiding you to see that for two years. And at the end of the day, it's I, you know, feel <laughs> smart. I, you know, feel like I can conquer the world rather than hey, thank you, Christine, mm. for being the guardrail <laughs> me to that point, asking the right questions, the hard questions, the challenging things. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a few and I remember them. <laughs> So how was, how was your early career uh, as a, did you get right into teaching and being a professor or? No, I took kind of a different route. It took me about three and a half years to finish uh, at the time an 18 month program. Hmm. Um, because my mom was ill, I dropped in and out a whole bunch. I didn't really think I was going to make it uh, through the, the process, but I kind of just took it one step at a time rather than thinking, oh gosh, I have 3000 hours. I have this and that. I just said, what job is going to lead me, you know, to that. Hmm. Even still, you know, I dropped out of school. I changed jobs a lot until I sort of found my footing. Um, and I worked with kids a lot and I worked with underserved communities. I worked with people who are not thinking about therapy. They're thinking hmm. about how do I keep the lights on oh. or, you know, parent is a drug addict and the child is in foster care now. And it was all very um, intense work. And I thought that's what it would always be. It's a big mm. reason why a lot of people don't get licensed because the early years are very tough. Mm. 
very social work like even though i was a therapist i felt like that was what was i that was what i was doing um mm. as time went on i started to get jobs that were more kind of private practice like and so i started to see you know there are multiple kinds of ways to practice as a clinician it was a lot more rigid back then than it is now in terms mm. of self-disclosure and you know i worked at dual diagnosis places where people are there all day and getting treatment. That's not a contained frame type of work. I mean, they know the car you drive, you eat lunch with them. I mean, they just know a lot more about you. So it's really interesting dipping my foot into multiple kinds of areas. Hmm. But teaching was an opportunity that I got when I went to work at a grief support center, which happened to be the same center that I went to when my mom died. So it was sort of this serendipitous, and that's kind of where the teaching came from. And the knowledge on grief and teaching about it was what this what made me attracted to the school because they just didn't have a grief class. Hmm. And most graduate schools still don't. So I went in there and that was initially what I started teaching based on my teaching workshops on grief and my job before that. And that's where it went, went from there. That is neat. I, we, we don't have any, we haven't had any type of grief workshops or classes on grief or anything either. Yeah. It's very yeah. surprising. It's, mm. it's, so I would have wait lists of like 20 people. I mean, it was very popular. I was very popular. My workshops on grief were very popular because people, therapists weren't feeling as though they were getting enough grief training and the uh -huh. model changed and how we understand it has changed and we moved away from the five-stage model, things like that. Uh -huh. They just didn't have the information of how to understand it differently than a stage model, which is really obsolete, not very valuable. So <laughs> yeah. sense. But yeah. um, yeah. So after that, I started teaching other classes. It was like, oh, Christine, can you just try this one class? We can't find an instructor. We need someone. I said, oh. Let me give it a, you know, I'll take a stab huh. on it. Yeah. See what and that led to me teaching a lot of other things and addiction. I had worked with addiction for a while. So it just went from there and then, you know, kind of changed, um, mm. which is what I guess my video was. Yeah. Yeah. Can you get into how did it change? Um, I, you know, we were always, I guess, kind of focused on, you know, and I had gone there in 2005. So it's been a long time. Mm probably what is that I don't, I don't know i can't do the math here 20 years ago probably uh -huh. about and they're always socially minded and kind of focused on you know being culturally competent and making sure that you're aware that not everybody you see believes what you believe and that that was okay mm -hmm. um, and that you were really kind of um, paying attention to the culture so it was always leaning toward that way but it started to shift quite a bit and um, started to become very activist focused. And I had an issue with that because it's one thing to be culturally competent and it's a whole nother thing to be an advocate or an, or an activist. Mm. They would talk about advocating for your client. Well, that could mean a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean you're actually wanting to support your client to advocate for themselves ultimately rather than, I guess, constantly validating a point of view 
that leads them to believe because there's systemic racism, which I don't believe in that. I believe there is racism. Absolutely. I do not believe it's systemic. That's too wide and, and general. And mm. this is why we're here. It's these sweeping, you know, belief systems that we have. So I started to have to kind of inject um, the systemic racist situation and start to create studies that are case studies for class that involved trans by stay away from hetero definitely all the other you know ethnicities or immutable characteristics and when it started to become that my students would make comments like well this would only happen to a white person it started to become to where it, i i was walking on eggshells to make mm. sure i incorporated every single possible type of person ever uh -huh. into a case study and it just didn't make any sense because then i saw sat there and thought well what if you get a white client i mean <laughs> i there's so many different things we're talking about human connection human mm. feelings human compassion there is a point of compassion you can find for everyone uh -huh. even people that you disagree with and think are just you know awful they're human beings at the end of the day and we're missing this boat so I was starting to kind of feel that way that the, the pandemic started, George Floyd was killed, and then they just went off the deep end and it went into kind of a mandate that we were required to teach uh, critical ideology. Mm. Um, it's not just race, it was gender, it was every marginalization, just every kind of situation, intersectionality, I mean, all, all everything. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and, you know, I felt like we were robbing, you know, robbing these students the ability to learn psychotherapy. All they're doing is debating in class. People say something and they're like, no, you're a white male. How dare you say that? And then there's a debate. And then the professors are encouraging this debate. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, we spent two and a half hours in class <laughs> talking about, you know, race and you're crying and you're crying and everyone's crying and no one's learning how to be a therapist. Uh -huh. Trust me, you're going to run into racist people as a therapist. We uh -huh. need to know how to work with it, not how to sit there and fight about the disgustingness of it, how to work with it, how to work with people who are privileged that might be entitled or narcissistic, and they aren't all. Mm. Take that umbrella away. They are not all that way. But you can help with that too and help people work on, you know, pieces where they don't have maybe compassion for pe for people different from them. Great. But are we going to say white privilege and that's everyone who's white and everyone who's a white male and a white female? I, this makes absolutely no sense. There's a different way to talk about these things because we're not acknowledging the ways in which we've moved forward. Hmm. We have a lot of work to do, but it became very small. Hmm. And I, I, in good conscience, couldn't say as an immigrant child of, of immigrant parents, I couldn't say as somebody who experienced some sort of racism, but in a different way that I would ever um, be able to teach in a blanketed fashion that uh -huh. kept everyone small. The white people felt small because they felt shame and felt they have to work their entire lives to undo racism because that's what they're told. Mm -hmm. The people of color feel small because they're told you're never going to be able to get out of this. You're always going to be in the system and let's lower the bar of expectation because mm -hmm. we don't believe you can reach the bar that white people can. That's insulting. Both sides of that coin mm -hmm. are damaged completely. And I don't know how this isn't being addressed. It's absolutely <sighs> warrant. It's a complete, complete opposite of empowerment, isn't it? And and if you're if you feel like that as a therapist and you go along with that, and then how are you going to handle clients? And what are you gonna what are you gonna uh, 
how are you going to come across to your clients and how, what are you going to model to them? Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're going to sort of support that and um, not challenge them to think about areas in their life where they are competent and where they can advocate and where they can push themselves. It's not a death sentence, you mm -hmm. know, career wise and financially to be a Latino living in urban LA. It feels like that, but it isn't that. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, something that I wasn't really allowed to say. Mm. Uh -huh. I had more freedom to teach early, but at this point, there was really not a lot of freedom. The school would send emails telling us how to handle classes. Please make sure the white students are treated this way and the people of color are treated that way. Wow. And we want to have them apologize as much as we can. And we're thinking about reparations and what that means. This is officially from the school. Wow. Disgusted. Yeah. So, okay, I so interestingly, what happened is I had a really rough last quarter there and um, I got a student, I think I mentioned this in the video, said, so there's this new model of addiction treatment that's phenomenal. It actually has you know, saved like 60% of people from overdosing or people who overdose from dying hmm. and then another 30% uh, to enter treatment. And so it's pretty phenomenal that that can happen. Yeah, Those are really big numbers for the addiction um, substance use community um people who are suffering from that so it was really incredible the person who host or who hosted the ted talk that they watched is a white woman and she has a southern accent so just already people are going to probably judge i guess i didn't yeah. think about it though and she's talking about it how she's you know a nurse and she was a firefighter and then now she's developed this whole thing and it was pretty incredible and Kind of the first thing that people said is that she's white and therefore they have they lend no credence to anything she has to say mm. she is totally devalued and they said you know why is it that they only care about the whites with opiates where were they during mm. the crack epidemic with black people uh -huh. and i just said I, we can't undo this okay we just we can't we've got to move forward and it's not about the color skin. This is about the model. Forget all that. We can adapt the model into other urban communities and other places around the world. West Virginia is the poorest state in the United States. Mm. One of the, my sister worked there. I saw people with no plumbing, no electricity, skipping school because they had work to do on the farm or they didn't have uh, water that day. Mm. The basic necessities. Uh, no program, no access to program. You can't say heart financial hardship. You can't do any of that. It's just your tough luck. So mm. she had half her students graduated and half didn't, and maybe we'll never do that. So that's one component of talking about people that don't have any money. And we're thinking about privilege. I don't see how they're privileged. Uh -huh. They're not going to get the education to go to college and get a free ride because they're white. They're not going to get a high profile executive job because they're white, there's no way it's going to be because they don't have the skill set. Uh -huh. So already there's a lack of being able to widen perspective and sort of keep this very broad view. I, the poorest people I've ever seen in my life were there. And I worked in the inner city of Los Angeles and in Richmond, which is Northern California, they're mm -hmm. probably one of the most, I don't know, violent crime ridden, uh, um, cities in the Bay Area. Mm. 
I mean, I, I was scared. Let's just put it that way. And I got approached by a couple of groups of gangs. I was driving down the street the wrong way one time. And I had two groups on either side of my car um, when I was driving through. It was still light out. And I'll never forget this. And they started sort of closing in. And I thought, oh, my God, do I try to run out? Do I try to, what if they shoot me? They need to know that I'm not armed uh-huh. and I'm not there. To be. So I took out my badge and I just kept putting it around and calling out social worker, social worker, not even therapist, social worker. And then they just sat there and then little by little, they, they moved back into their positions. Wow. I knew a therapist who got murdered going inside one of the homes. Wow. You know, the, I, So it's not that I didn't see it. Uh-huh. It was the worst thing I'd ever uh-huh. you know, second word. So when I say Richmond and, and, and um, LA, and I say the poorest populations that I've seen were in West Virginia, I'm not talking about violence or crime. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about access to resources that would lift you up so that you can get an education. Tons of resources available to these young people. It's about whether or not they can access or whatever, and we make it easy to access. I mean, the school is down the street and we had bars and concrete everywhere because it was a high you know, shooting, drive-by shooting community. Well, that may not be happening in West Virginia, but you have people in West Virginia that are dying, dying from starvation mm-hmm. and dying because they're getting illnesses from unsanitated, unsanitation and whatever, not sanitary places to use the restroom. And the, whatever it is, the septic tank flows over and they can't do anything about it. They don't have money. So, you know, I've seen both sides of poverty and crime. And I cannot say with any level of confidence that what happens to people in California by gun violence from police or from each other mm. is worse than what I saw in West Virginia where people didn't have clothes on their back and there was no homeless service around. I worked with the homeless too, by the way, out here. They didn't have access to resources out there. Homeless people here do actually. So that was not comfortable. And I I just sat there and went, how can I do this? How can I, I had another student say, well, you know, you're using the word maladaptive and talking about, you know, um, clients coping skills. Well, you know, using substances is maladaptive and that's a clinical term. You need to know clinical terms when you're a clinical environment, learning clinical psychology. I don't, it doesn't mean you say that to your clients later or you don't or whatever uh-huh. in this class, in these classes, you need to understand what that means. So then it started to erode even my ability to use kind of clinical language. I started to have white students contact me separately and say they're devastated. They can't talk in class because they're going to get ripped to shreds. I had one student come to me and say, you know, this professor who I knew very well, um, he said something about, they were talking, it was a human sexuality class. He mentioned something about sexuality among men and he got sort of ripped for that. Mm. And the, and the instructor was encouraging it. Uh, mm-hmm. He sat there on, on the sideline, his transgender sat there and said, yeah, you know, your students are angry. And th- in the chat, I guess these students were saying things like, you know, yes, you, you, you put him in his place. Let's keep going. Let's kind of, uh, I don't remember the word he used, but they were escalating it. Mm-hmm. And the instructor was like, well, you said what you said. 
so male, white males can't have, I don't have sexuality worth exploring. I, I don't understand <sighs> why is that we're expanding sexuality, but you can't, it can't be to the demise of people who are heterosexual. That doesn't work. Yeah. And they started to take out words like parent and woman and man and par parents, because you may have been raised in a foster home or by caretakers that were not your um, you know, biological parents. So gee, that's activating. If this therapist is going to be activated over some client that said, I have parents, you know, and I grew up in whatever neighborhood, they have no business doing this work, then get out. Uh -huh. You need to have some level of skin here, thin or thick skin. You need to be able to connect with your client on a point of compassion where you can get down to the basics of what it means to be a human being. That's what uh -huh. attracted them there and their message. Uh -huh. So these were the kinds of things happening. You know, the other day I heard a biology, um, high school teacher this was on some leaked clip who said well we're changing biology classes in high school to accommodate the transgender students so what we're going to say is instead of you know woman produces ovary or has ovaries that produce eggs we're going to say ovaries produce eggs it doesn't have to be a woman this is mm. ludicrous. Ugh. This is ludicrous. And I am making a judgment about this. It's out of control. And now you have these children, these kids that are running around that are saying they're transgender. It's like something like 0.1% of the population actually is. It's uh -huh. something very, very low. So we're like 30% and it's not accurate. It's uh -huh. I, wanting to bend, blend or fit in, wanting to, you know, we're not teaching gender roles in the same way. It's like back in the day, you know, if I'm a girl and I like sports, uh -huh. then we're trying to say, okay, you're a girl, you can like sports. It doesn't mean sports are only for men, but you're I'm still a girl. I'm a yeah. girl who likes sports. It doesn't mean I'm having a gender dysphoria kind of, you know, nightmare now and, and you know, complete agony because I actually am a boy because I like sports. This is the difference between how they're teaching it now and what it was before. Uh -huh. So now it's that I must be a guy, right? So, you know, something like 12 or older can seek therapy for that, for gender dysphoria now on their own, no parent consent. They're talking about puberty blockers and hormone blockers um, so that children can choose their identity, their gender later in life. They're mm -hmm. talking about potentially it being abusive uh, if your parent does not recognize your pronouns or your name, mm -hmm. um, the name in which you don't want them to call you, uh -huh. um, it's emotional, you know, abuse and neglect that this is so off the rails that it's almost like this is what's pushing people to the extreme on the other side, mm -hmm. because it's, it's so pervasive that people can't, we've lost the middle. I mean, that's really what's going on. Uh -huh. So not to get too political into it, this is what I was supposed to be teaching. And it's a cisgender, you know, female who identifies as a woman, just to say I, I'm a woman. I mean, uh -huh. it's cool. yeah. you know, all gender bathrooms happened at my school long before they did at other schools. And I was uncomfortable, but, you know, I kind of just bared it for the time. But I had a male student who was standing next to me, six foot two, in the stall next to me. That's, first of all, inappropriate. Secondly, I wasn't comfortable, you yeah. know, I just know, you know, 
it wasn't comfortable for me to be to be in that environment. And I brought this up a couple of times in other interviews and people maybe are uncomfortable with this idea that it is a biological function that women menstruate mm -hmm. and that we want to have female, you know, sanitary items in the bathroom uh -huh. and that it can be more embarrassing to have a man standing right there and there's a 14 year old girl so a guy even mm -hmm. that needs to go get her sanitary products and she's not necessarily very you know she hasn't been menstruating a long time this is yeah. all huge you know wow kind of you need to adapt things like that that people don't think about when they start talking about this all gender you know situation and especially you know high school and adolescent years uh, and it leads to the confusion. I mean, it's almost a trend to be transgender. And so the, 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 you know, the development, you know, psychological development of, of, of children from multiple ideologies that all stem from, you know, critical, uh, critical ideology. It's not just race, it's gender. It's every other, you know, iteration you can possibly think of. And mm -hmm. so, um, seeing that I had to talk about. I had to remember, I can't just say gay, gay male, what's what, uh, whatever gender, I don't even remember what it was, you know, gay person who identifies as male, because you could be, you know, a male if uh -huh. biologically and gay, but still think you're a woman and not identify as transgender. What you're blowing <sighs> my mind. Uh -huh. I can't understand that. Nor nor do I nor do I align with it. And I'm not going to teach something I don't align with. I think this is crazy. Mm. It's weaponization of words, it's hijacking of words, it's hijacking concepts. And I'm not going to participate in this. And so lucky for me, I guess, I had had a spinal surgery uh right after that quarter ended. Um and my doctor was like, you need to take six months off. I, I've had many spinal surgeries. And after this one, it was, you need to take some time. So I said, fine. And it was in that six months that I went, oh my God, no, 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 this is wrong. I don't believe in this. We're weakening people, victimization. Now people are, you know, men are in the you know, spot Korean spa where there's naked women because uh -huh. the guy, I'm a man, I'm a, a man, you know, and there's rioting and the owners of the Korean spa are like, we can't do anything about it. Or we're going to get totally, you know, doxxed and we're going to get, you know, attacked in our businesses. This is real. I mean, it's not painted that way in some, in the media or whatever, but this yeah. is a real phenomenon happening. And if people looked at other, you know, independent stuff, you know, independent media sources, they will see a little bit more um, variation. It's, there's probably bias everywhere, but they may see a little more variation. So this is sort of what they're, you know, what they're doing. And I don't believe in that. I don't support it. But if it comes up in a classroom, hmm. my position, according to the school's new philosophical and political position, I, as the instructor, as the professor, must teach it this way. Hmm. I mean, if you have because you have students that say they're psychologically injured from something that happened in class, they're psychologically traumatized. And I'm thinking, you're traumatized over somebody saying that to you. How are you going to feel when a client sits there and calls you and every name in the book hmm. to your face? If uh -huh. you're working dual diagnosis, you're not going to just drop your client. Uh -huh. That's just not what happens in dual diagnosis, for example. You uh -huh. don't have as much wiggle room to do that because 
most of the clients, especially in the beginning of getting sober, are frustrated and acting that way yeah. and blaming people. I mean, this is out of control. You need to have a bit of a thicker skin. There's a difference between requ requiring, you know, respect and firing your client. It, it just, we had a couple of therapists who quit because of microaggressions from their client. There mm. you go. Yeah. And that was a setting that there wasn't severe mental health. I mean, they probably said something. I don't, I don't really remember what it was, but it yeah. may have even been about, you know, all Asians cook well, something like that, or, you know, Asian women are the best cooks. That would be maybe an example of a microaggression that is really not meant to be one. Um, anyhow, uh -huh. so they're, they're, they're correlating microaggressions and like harm to mm. preference to what people's preferences are. Mm. And that's where we're very damaged. That's where the microaggression is very damaged. If I prefer, if I say I like white men, I, that's, that's uh -huh. who I like, uh -huh. that is considered some sort of racial microaggression, whatever. And it's not that I don't think other men can be attractive. Uh -huh. It's that's my preference. Mm -hmm. And it's not internalized, you know, white supremacy, internalized toxic shame, you name it. Uh -huh. It's that it's a preference. So how do we delineate between the two? We need yeah. to start using our critical yeah. thinking skills. Well, you preferring white men, let's say that's discriminatory against every other race. So every other race and women. I mean, I yeah, have and women. Yeah, I had a student who she was uh, artificially inseminated. She was with her, you know, she was a, a lesbian, her partner's lesbian. So they mm -hmm. went and they, you know, got went about it that way. Uh -huh. And so I said, oh, gosh, what are you having a boy or a girl? And her first answer to me was, we're not giving the child a gender. We're going to let the child choose from infancy. Mm -hmm. Six year old, you know, uh -huh. daughter, a good friend of mine comes home one day, mom, they're telling me you know, am I still a girl? And of course you're a girl. They're telling me in class, I can choose. I mean, this is off the rails. Uh -huh. So we need to come back to a level of sanity. And I saw that in fair and all of this sort of turnaround happened within that six months. And that's uh -huh. when I decided not to go back. And it wasn't so much that, oh, gee, you know, I, I knew some of this on some deeper level, you know, yeah. I just kind of pushed it down so I could do my job. Well, <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, I just can't to tolerate, I, I can't. And I discovered fair in a couple other places I started kind of looking into, and I started writing a little bit for them and writing a couple of, you know, just blog type articles, um, that were experience-based. And now I'm writing a chapter in a book for another group. That's just anecdotal. Uh, it's not a peer reviewed type of book. It's for the commoner who doesn't, uh, who isn't in the field of psychology. Uh -huh. So I did a little bit more of those types of things. And okay. then just, you know, I can't go back. I can't go back to the classroom. Um, mm. I'm afraid to even teach, to even take clients, if we're going to be honest. Okay. Um, you yeah, know, I was curious if you, if you're still doing therapy or not. I'm probably going to return to it just to stay fresh and mm. fair. I'm reducing my hours so I can do both. Um, one of the standards, ethical standards, you know, for the California Association for Therapists. And let me tell you, there's subtext. They don't come out and say this, but the subtext is such that if you're in a position where you are of a different color or ethnicity or skin tone, that you need to acknowledge that in the room right away. So let's say you were going to see a female client 
my color even, or a black woman, uh -huh. the first thing you need to say is, how does it feel to sit in front of a privileged white man with a marginalized woman? Uh -huh. it, that isn't the most insulting thing I've ever heard. Okay, nothing uh -huh. tops that. And that, you know, you're required to go do research. You are required to not ask, what's it like for you to be a black woman? You should already know what it's like to be a black woman. Excuse me. Hmm. If somebody said, what's it like to be a Middle Eastern? I would tell them, confusing. I have so many messages from so many different places, even within my own family. Hmm. So I've had to kind of figure this out. It's nuanced. I don't fit in with my family who still believe in kind of the women being the homemakers. Uh -huh. I don't fit in with, you know, the completely white privileged, if you want to say rich, wealthy people who grew up in Bel Air. So where do I fit? <laughs> Where's my box? Where's my circle? Yeah. It's absolutely ludicrous to not be able to ask your client. You know, my own therapist that I had years ago was a white male and uh, I've been with him for about nine years at that time. And he says to me one day, you know, Christine, in the time of me, I never asked you this. What's it like being a Middle Eastern woman? And do you feel marginalized? And I stopped and said, what what i'm here because i keep attracting toxic men and i can't figure out how to date men <laughs> who aren't toxic i'm not here because of my feelings of being marginalized and my racial trauma what are you talking about and not that racial trauma doesn't exist but why are we filling in the blanks uh-huh very distressed and said i no that i'm not even i'm not talking about that right now i need to figure out how to create a healthy relationship with a man uh-huh you know so there's this assumption too that yeah. gets enters the room yeah. and that's the antithesis of being curious and wondering the core tenants psychology curious wondering rapport hmm. safe trust whatever core tenants without that there's nothing how are you going to do that you need to get to know your client you you need to have your client trust you and understand, listen to what it is they want. So yes, I will be seeing clients again, and I don't know how this is going to go, but um, but you know, well-experienced therapist, I think I'll be fine. Uh, but yes, that is my own therapist. That I, I hope that your, you know, at the time he was my boyfriend, uh, his family didn't vote for Trump because they're conservative-leaning politically, because Trump's disgusting. And I thought, oh God. So whether they did or didn't is irrelevant. It's the fact that if I don't come in with, you know, these liberal views, uh -huh. what we call liberal views, he's going to judge me. Hmm. And then I'm just right there, just sort of shattered hmm. our connection because that's irrelevant. It's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. The hate he had. I mean, it was anyway. So. Hmm. And how did you, how did you come across, uh, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so in my search uh, for what was really going on in this world, you know, politically and with George Floyd and what are people and BLM and what are people really fighting for? Let me mm -hmm. think about this in a deeper way. Let me uh -huh. think about, you know, not just the surface of rights or you know pr police brutality but let me look a little deeper into what this all means and kind of one thing led to another 
And I somehow, I, I was starting to read articles that were published on like critical therapy antidote, places like that, that were a hub for therapists and psychologists who were feeling as though woke culture, which I would say critical ideology rather than woke, but that culture was starting to uh, infiltrate the practice of psych psychology and the academic level. And so I went in there, wrote a couple articles, a few people somehow found my article and said, hey, there's this organization you might like. Um, and I didn't really follow through. And then somehow I stumbled onto another that was written by a teacher and his name's Paul Rossi. And he had made a very kind of epic resignation from his uh, teaching job. And it went was published in a couple of newspapers. And so I emailed him and I emailed a lot of people, never heard back, but I emailed him and just said, you know, I'm having this experience. And he again said, well, you should go to FAIR. So then by that time, I heard twice from a teacher and from a ther therapist. And so I just reached out to them and said, I'd like to volunteer. Uh, not a whole lot happened in the beginning. Uh, I was part of the LA chapter um, and not much was, was, was happening, but there was this event uh, that we did have. And I showed up to it. There were like eight of us and, you know, the state chapter leader said, um, you know, what do you enjoy most about your career? And I said, teaching, I miss it because I'm not going back. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to be able to do that. And uh, she said, oh, well, we're looking for trainers. And I said, oh, I love training. And, oh, great. So one thing led to another. I was connected to buy-in. And just at the time, it was, they just started doing DEI, you know, training uh -huh. from their perspective. They already had a huge corporate client and their trainer dropped out at the last second. Uh -huh. So they literally said, okay, here you go. You have enough teaching experience. Can you start and just do these? Mind you, I'm still on a volunteer umbrella. <laughs> and I said, okay, I guess, sure. And then it turned into, you know, a full-time uh, position. So, you know, serendipitous, I think mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but I had to look for that. And I think that's part of it too, is people are very scared to speak out. They're very um, mm -hmm. kind of sheltered in that way. And, and they don't uh, spend a lot of time looking around because you will find, you know, um, people who share a similar mm -hmm. philosophy with you, uh, but it's, you have to take the time to really look for it. It's not mm -hmm. just out there. Um, and I did, I had the time because I was home on disability with, you know, essentially a neck that I couldn't move. And so <laughs> I was on the computer. <laughs> yeah. So that's how that happened. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it, um, when I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Nina Salander, and she kind of, she she referenced the critical ther uh, therapy antidote, I think that's what it is. Oh, did she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, and you you do, you find these people and, and you reach out to different people and you find different organizations and different, okay. it is, yeah. But you do have to look. You do have to look because it's it's yeah. not the popular viewpoint right now. No, and yeah. actually, I made the video. I didn't. I made the video after I was working there, but I came up with the script and all that. Or you know, they kind of helped sort of edit the script. Mm -hmm. That was first. That was when I was still a volunteer. Okay. And uh, they said, you know, wow, you know, to have a therapist and a clinical, you know, professor who's in the classroom. We'd love to hear your viewpoint. So I wrote a little something for them. They said, can we turn it into a video? So yeah. that, and I said, great, but the video happened, you know, yeah. after I was an employee, uh, a lot of people are scared 
and that's you know they don't want their reputation to be tarnished in that way uh -huh. which i understand but you know i don't feel like i have anything to lose for me it was like all right well they can come back at me i can be blackballed what do i care i have a lot of experience i do a lot of things it didn't feel scary mm. to me mm. But I did get a lot of people that you know contacted me and have done several interviews and books and stuff. And uh -huh. the critical therapy antidote, the editor is actually the one publishing the book that I'm working on now. So okay. that's how I got connected to that uh, yeah. piece of writing. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask uh, if you felt any type of fear about repercussions or any type of thing like that. I because I think that is a prevalent viewpoint. Like if I speak out, then this will happen. Um, and I don't know how founded that is. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there are some antidotal stories. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had a couple students find my video on fair, mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, were very supportive and wow, you know, you're sort of speaking for all of us. There's more people that are not aligned with this than people that are. It's just yeah. the ones who are, this small group of people are the loudest and they're the most kind of pushing the agenda influential. But the base, I don't think in my experience is kind of more centra, cent central. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, I had people that found out who went to the school. Uh, so they saw about what I said about the school. And I thought, well, it could get circulated to the provost and goodness knows who else. And mm. it does, it does. Um, with my license, though, with my therapy license, I was more worried about that. But mm. I hadn't said anything I thought that would give them grounds to sue me. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, reputation wise, I, I that's very possible. Um, but on the client side, you know, if you just Google my name and a lot of clients do this before they go in, you're going to see that video pop up on the first page. So you're going to be able to listen and see what I think. And so there's already going to be a lens, you know, yeah, through yeah. which yeah. they know that I view these issues and yeah. then they can choose. And I think that's what made it a blessing in disguise is that hmm. The people that might be attracted, you know, to therapy or my kind of work would be people that have probably seen it. Yeah. On on Google. Yeah, I saw an article. Um, I think it was an article about kind of just posing the question, the curiosity, like curiously, um, where where will we be heading as a field? Where we like will therapists one day be saying, "This is my." therapeutic approach and this is my political affiliation or like this is where i this is where i stand ideologically or like you know because um i don't know i just it's just yeah 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 i actually have gotten some emails from people that are saying do you know conservative leaning therapist mm. so i do think it's starting uh -huh. at where people are you know searching and they do kind of want to know the therapist background too a little uh -huh. bit uh-huh so yeah, I think if we don't, if this doesn't change direction, uh -huh. eventually that's what I think is going to happen. I, I, the changing direction is so complex that we're talking about, you know, academia at the highest levels that are then involved with a lot of different, you know, political motivations and things. Yeah. The provost of the school told me when I resigned, 
And I was honest, there are other professors that came to him with the same concerns, students who complained, and that he tended to align with my way of thinking. And I said, then why are we doing this? Uh -huh. He said, because I don't think we have an option and we have to do something. Hmm. I don't know how many places think that. There's probably yeah. a lot. Yeah. So if those people that have some position of power or or influence i should say uh -huh. step up then perhaps we can start shifting the narrative but i think your point is it is a huge possibility mm -hmm. maybe even a likelihood at this point wow it's i mean once you see it in the psychology world it's 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 pretty deep especially mm -hmm. if they're thinking about these things in biology class i i you know yeah that's yeah. out in left field yeah um any uh any like any books you would recommend someone someone who's kind of going through some of this read or familiarize themselves with yeah it it's extremely difficult because uh, a lot of people don't want to speak out from the therapist psychologist standpoint hmm. coddling of the american mind is really good okay um Habits of a Free Mind is good. That is a psychologist named Pamela Paresky. Hmm. And that is actually a curriculum-based course oh. um, that challenges ideology, this oh, ideology. Cool. She's really cool. So I would say those are two really good places. Um, I would follow John McWhorter's writing. He writes hmm. a lot and he poses a lot of interesting questions. Now he's a journalist, so he's gonna have that perspective. And so is, I think, um, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote um, The Coddling of the American Mind. So I, I would say Pamela Paresky is probably one of the best resources out there because she's edited, contributed to several books, and she has this Habits of a Free Mind program. Uh, she's done a keynote speak with uh, a keynote um, speech with us. Mm -hmm. And so that was that was really great uh, she aligns a lot with what the fair kind of viewpoint is so i think that would be a good resource and that's about all i can think of if people can get on to critical therapy antidote it's another good resource because you can find out names of books and you can get a lot of support and it's a international organization it's just you kind of have to they sort of have to vet you if uh -huh. that makes sense they don't want kind of trollish people trolls mm -hmm. <laughs> coming in so there's a bit of a vetting process there but uh it's it's great because you can kind of say anything because once you get in there then they're very supportive okay um but they have a lot of recommendations there's a lot of research studies posted in there okay that might be valuable so. yeah that's helpful thank you yeah yeah okay um any uh i guess last last question any any advice for people up and coming in the field I think I think what I would say is it's important to know, you know, what this narrative is. Uh, you have to be aware and know and get knowledge. But at the end of the day, you know, trust your gut and your intuition and where you feel you want to be going. If it feels uncomfortable to say it, if it feels bad, if it feels like you hate yourself if it feels like you're responsible for things you aren't, if you feel like it's your job to go and unwind whatever centuries ago, uh, you know, events have happened. Hmm. If any of that is going on, then reevaluate what you're doing. 
Hmm. and align with your authentic self and who you are, because that will burn you up, uh, burn you out very quickly. Hmm. And that also just means something's wrong. Something doesn't sit right with you. And if something doesn't sit right with you, you're not going to be able to provide the most effective therapy space that you can. Hmm. You have to practice from your own beliefs and your own instinct and intuition and place of alignment and if you don't it's going to be noticed by the client it will be seen so if you're feeling like this stuff is making you feel yucky and bad about yourself you need to take a look at that that means something's not aligning and you need to take a look at that hmm. if you can't find that then you need to consider what it is you want to be doing with your life um, it's not an activist profession and we need to get out of that way of thinking hmm. so that's what i would say if it feels bad and yucky and guilty and all of those things, and it probably is. Yeah, good. Okay. Thank you, Christine. This has been uh, very enjoyable. I appreciate yeah. you meeting with me. Me yeah. too. Yes, anytime and good luck. So we can stay in touch if you'd like. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.